Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chinese History Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Yiming Ha. Our guest for today is Professor Pamela Crossley, the Charles and Alfred Collis Professor of History at Dartmouth University. She specializes in the history of the Qing Empire and modern China, although her research interests also span inter-Asian history, global history, history of horsemanship in Eurasia, and imperial sources of modern identities. She is the author of eight books and numerous book chapters and peer review articles, and her book, A Translucent Mirror, is the winner of the Joseph Levinson Prize of the Association for Asian Studies. Additionally, she has also written commentaries for major newspapers and magazines. Professor Crossley joins me today to talk about issues of culture and identity in Qing imperial ideology and how it is related to the complex issue of ethnicity in modern China. Welcome, Professor Crossley. Thank you so much for taking the time to come to our show. Thanks for asking me. So the first question I want to ask you is that we know that the late Jin state founded by Nur Haji, like many other non-Han regimes that arose in the North and the Northeast, it was a multi-ethnic state. Aside from the Jurchens themselves, there were also Han Chinese living in the area who either joined with the later Jin state or were conquered by the later Jin state. And there were Mongols as well. In fact, Norhachi, he defeated Ligdan Khan and subjugated Mongolia. So how did he deal with this multi-ethnic nature of his regime? It must have been very complicated. So did ethnicity play a role at all in how he governed? Well, you're using that word ethnicity, right? And that's our word, right? So that's something we start doing in the 20th century. And it basically, I think to us, means not only that we're essentializing some cultural qualities in particular of individuals, but we're also projecting that back and giving it some kind of a causative chart, right? I mean, we wouldn't be discussing it if we didn't think it was going to help us explain things happening from the past. So when you say they're in a multi-ethnic state, this is a very frequently used term. It is bothersome to me because I haven't heard anybody back there say we have a multi-ethnic state. That's just the way we look at them, casting it back. Now, your question is about the real cultural differences that were existing and how do you put together a state that accommodates all that? And I think there are various approaches, and you do see them in the early period of the Aizin or the, the Jin Khanate. Norhachi's original impulse was to make all people who weren't actually enslaved, make them act more or less the same, so that it would be Ijia, it'd be one family. And so his sartorial requirements were that everybody should dress the same, everybody should have the same hairstyle, and so on. But you very quickly see that change kinds of ways, establishing, which is a slow process in the 1630s, 1640s, establishing these separate kind of cultural categories within the eight banners is one of the methods used. The method that has always interested me the most is the way that the rulership is built in order to allow this ruler to more or less nativize himself in each of these cultural identities. But to do that, you have to stereotype them. You have to assign them to living people. You have to narrate them historically so that each of them somehow or other leads up to the agency that they performed in furthering the conquest. 
So there's all that kind of thing. Now, the only other thing I would point out here is that there isn't a single method that is used from, let's say, 1607 or 1616 all the way through the Qing. And the movement into Liaodong after 1618, I think, is really transformative. And so at that point, there comes a real urge to distinguish conquerors from the conquered in an environment where, for the first time, the conquered vastly outnumber the conquerors. So I think that completely changes the dynamics of the administrative side of this. And I think on the representational side, and particularly in regard to the rulership itself, I think it accelerated some processes that continued through the 18th century in reifying right these selected identities within the rulership. That's very interesting. And hearing your explanation, I have two questions. The first is, as you said, this word ethnicity is a very modern concept. People back then certainly didn't understand it the way that we understand it today. So how did they, in Norhachi's time, view people who were different, like the Mongols and the Chinese? Clearly, they must have known that they're not Jurchens. How would they have categorized them? And then if you can talk a little bit more about this transformation that happened after this movement into Laodong, how exactly did things start to change? Let me take the first one first to just say, with respect to each of these, what we would now call these separate identities, it's very complex. So even this term Nikan, it clearly, to my mind, comes from Chinese. It's Han, right? But it takes this form Nikan which is a little mystifying, but that's what it means. Now, who is a Nikan? Nikan, clearly, by the end of the 16th century, it means people who are living in that style. So people who are either farming or they may actually live in a town or a city and be merchants, right? Traders. They speak Chinese. They may organize their families the way that the North Chinese organize their families. In some cases, they have all these cultural attributes because, yeah, their ancestors came to Jilin from Liaodong, and so that's them. But in other cases, they're actually of Korean descent. In other cases, they have remote Jurchen ancestry, but they have just taken on these cultural attributes. These are all Nikan, and this is the main criterion in the early period for putting people into the Hanjun banners. They are fulfilling the criteria of Nikan. Jurchan is equally complex. There are Jurchan groups like the Hulun, whom the Aizin elites refused to call Jurchans. They called them Mongols. And in 1635, when Hong Taiji announces that, well, we're just not going to use that Jurchen name anymore. We've got to come up with a new name. He happened to come up with Manchu. It's very clear when you look at the conditions then, he's doing that because Jurchen didn't really mean anything anymore. And he said very clearly, and I think this has maybe been a little misunderstood over the centuries, he said that Jurchen is a word for barbaric peoples. He means when we say it, <laughs> when we, the Aizin, we say it, we mean barbaric peoples. They were talking about the peoples of Keilongjiang, the ones who are paying us tribute. So we don't want anymore to be this whole sort of spectrum of Jurchens. We don't want that anymore. We want to be very clear. We have one term that applies to the, I guess you'd say, subjects or followers of the Aijing Khan. And we're going to use Manchu for that. But that's, it's a response to the fact that 
jurchen as a term had become so complex and so had nikan and so had mongol as a matter of fact so the dahurs right the hulans are those what are those they had to be resolved as either manchu or mongol and i think this is where the administrative mechanisms come in that do this this is where you get the reification through representation of the rulership through the establishment of the historical narratives for them that's the answer to the first question it's very complicated and this is one of the problems with just using the word ethnic it kind of flattens all of those complexities that i think in real time were things that people noticed and accommodated in some way without necessarily ascribing huge meanings to it Now your second question was about what kind of changes occur once you move into Liaodong and you didn't specify whether you meant administrative changes or you meant ideological changes as they would relate to the rulership but I think the basic issue in both of those dimensions was this novel environment in which there are many conquered people and relatively few conquerors and you have to continue the dynamic that had begun before that with Nurhaci of turning the conquered into conquerors and was one of those reasons that Nurhaci wanted the kind of let's just forget about whatever differences we have we're all on the same team so we'll all wear the same jersey da 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 you want to continue this dynamic we've got to keep turning the conquered into conquerors and this is in the 1630s in particular where you see this very major population come into the chinese martial banners the hanjin banners this is one of the major venues for that we have to turn the conquered into conquerors but there are these other so sort of administratively there are all these other issues who's going to be in the army who's going to take the exams who's going to be eligible for serving in the bureaucracy how will we identify people for purposes of taxation and then there are these security issues particularly they had this little bit of an experiment in the 1620s of let's just have the jurchens live in the houses right of the let's just have the troops live in the houses of the chinese that isn't necessarily a long term solution so kind of did away with that one but administratively you have to keep trying to find out how will we physically place the conquerors here in this new territory and among this population so that they can function they can remain distinct right and so i think it's just those are the kinds of problems that come in Now, on the representational level i think it just accelerates it makes more urgent right this need to be able to represent the ruler as somebody whose legitimacy can be represented in different cultural contexts the cultural contexts that relate to the qing process so it's going to be mongolian and manchu after 1635 and chinese which is itself this sort of complicated proposition but i think that process accelerates particularly hong taiji's period and then remains complex through the kangxi period and reaches a kind of apex in the qianlong period before we go any further i want to go back a little bit when you were explaining the answer to the first question i couldn't help but notice this kind of strange parallel with what happened a couple hundred years earlier under the mongols when you have this ethnic category called the han hanren but it wasn't just chinese that were in that category there were jurchens kitans koreans and even people from yunnan 
and how the Mongols ended up facing some of the very same problems that Nurhaci and Hong Taiji faced in dealing with these different groups of people. I was just wondering if the later Jin and the Qing states ever looked back on how the Mongol Yuan did things and drew inspiration from that, or was this something that they faced on their own? What do you think? When you say the same kinds of difficulties being faced by the Mongols and then also by the Manchus later, I mean, do you have particular difficulties in mind? Well, it's just, it's the same issue where you have a small group of conquerors moving into an area with a lot of conquered, and then how do you deal with them? How do you bring them into the empire? And then we see the same thing with this classification of people into Mongolian, Semuren, Central Asians, Hanren, and then later the Southerners, right, Nanren. So I was just wondering if there's any kind of inspiration taken from what the Mongols did. Well, I think in both cases, these are identity institutions that are pretty closely tied to the process of conquest. So to me, the differences are maybe greater than the similarity. One similarity that's outstanding to me is the sort of chronological framework, right? So the Mongols conquering the territory we recognize as Chinese, that takes most of the 13th century. And the, the Qing gaining control over these territories we would regard as Chinese, that takes most of the 17th century. These very long periods of gradual conquest, I think, and particularly overland conquest, right? This is very important. What helps to build these kinds of institutions I'm talking about, both administratively in terms of the eight banners, but then also in the way the rulership is represented. Now, in the case of the Mongols, they went through a much earlier process where they had to actually figure out who's a Mongol. As this was a ter terrifically complicated thing from the very beginning, as very few people were ever identified as Mongols. So in, in being able to consolidate this through using the same or very similar language, the same written medium, standardizing the religious practices, the shamanic practices, so that it looks like we're all doing more or less the same thing, that takes time. So it's not like Mongols, as we would know them, let's say, by 1204, 1205, 1206, they just peek up out of the ground like some natural phenomenon. They had been formed by this process of very early conquest in Mongolia. That's actually, that looks a lot like the very early period, even prior to the Jin Khanate, where they're trying to do the same thing. There's the Jinjol Jurchens, I think, are a much bigger population to start with than the Mongols have been in Eastern Mongolia. But the basic idea is the same. We've got to standardize some things. We've got to make some things that look us all the same. And when you come into our organization, you come into our outfit, this is part of what we're going to do. And through intermarriage and so on, eventually we'll have some kind of a fairly unified population. So the Mongols, so Sumo ran, okay, that's fine. The Mongols from a very early period were identifying these people in a book that I wrote called them Sartic Peoples, who are actually, this is the group that in China is more or less the Sumo. They have a very specific function. They go wherever the Mongol Empire is. That much we get. The Han is the population of North China. And as you say, it's not just people who have overwhelmingly Chinese ancestry, but they can have Kitan or eventually Jurchen, but they've got a lot of different sort of things going on, but they are regarded as distinct from the Man. And if you think of the five dynasties period before this, North China had been under the governance 
of a series of states, right, Liaojing and then Yuan, in which this population had lived very successfully with rulers who were from Mongolia or from the Northeast. So it was a population that over time was tempered, right, to have a political history that was very different from the South. And so the feeling of the Mongols was we're pretty much already compatible with the Han, but the Man have not experienced this kind. They just have a distinct political history. Let's acknowledge that. And then have the hierarchy where they're one, two, three, four, they're all in this sort of relationship to each other. So when you look at the Qing, it is quite different, right? For one thing, within the Eight Banners, there's no idea that Manchu, Han, and Han Jun are somehow in this hierarchical relationship, as in the case of the Mongol legal categories. Now, in practice, we know that's not actually the way it was, but legally and ideologically, it's not at all the Mongol system. And I think there are all these other differences that relate to the fact that the Mongol aristocracy was enfiefed in China and the Qing aristocracy was not actually enfiefed. And so this gives you a very different dynamic between the ruler and the imperial lineage and the bureaucracy that eventually feeds into all of this. And this is related, I think, to the fact that the Qing is just a much, much longer period than the Yuan. So to me, the similarities would be superficial. I'm actually glad we took this detour into the Yuan and talked a little bit about that, because I think, first of all, people just tend to assume that groups like the Mongols and the Manchus just came up and conquered. That was not the case, right? There's a lot of identity building beforehand. And also they think that the Yuan and the Qing are both these non-Han Chinese dynasties that conquered all of China, so they must be similar. They're not. And finally, I think this kind of relates to a question that I want to ask next is that now that the Qing has moved into Liaodong, you mentioned that there are these ideological changes as well as legal and administrative problems that starts to arise when you have this whole population of conquered. What happens then after they move into China proper? Because then you have a much, much larger population of conquered. And specifically, I'm thinking about how they would then distinguish the Han that were in Liaodong from the Han who were in China proper, because this kind of goes back to your explanation of what the Mongols did, right? They separated Chinese, Han Chinese people from the north and the south. So do we see something similar in the Qing, where people, Han people from Liaodong are seen as more distinct than Han people from China proper? I think there is a little similarity here between, let's say, 1621 and 1644. Maybe the major response to moving into this environment in which you've got a tiny minority of ostensible conquerors and then this huge population of the conquered. One of the major responses that was simply building within the eight banners, these categories and populating them. And that was, by the way, an administrative process and could also be a judicial process. It wasn't just very few people thought this is just a naturally objective thing. We just discover what people's identity is, then we put them in the correct banner category. You had to actually, this all had to be processed on the basis of various criteria. So in 1630s and then 1640s, when the banners come into Liaodong, they don't have these distinctions. But by the time that they reach China, they do have. And the majority population within the banners as a whole is Chinese martial. 
So this is a very critical population. They are providing not only technical services to the military, but a lot of the support services, the cooking, the cleaning, the secretarial stuff. So they are absolutely indispensable and they outnumber everybody else, most likely. Yes, it is absolutely important to the Qing that they be distinguished from the civilians. And that is what happens in the Qing records when they use the term mean. That's the main opposition to qi, right? So you're in the banners or you're a civilian. That's really the difference that mattered the most to the state. So the Chinese martial population, a lot of them were actually, they were Northeasterners. They had been born in Liaodong or they had spent their whole military career there or something. They had some kind of connection to Liaodong. And the Qing were just hoping that, okay, these are going to be our agents of conquest. We can trust these people. We don't have to tear the entire administrative apparatus of China down to the ground and rebuild it. We just leave it as it is and slide these people into the top slots. And then poof, we have an occupation government. And they really thought that would work. They tried hard that it just turned out that once you put people in those positions and they have huge amount of personal discretion, it may be that it's hard to control them over time. You eventually have the three feudatories rebellion. There's a, a place where this has to be resolved. But uh, yeah, the hundred population remains, uh, I think, a largely trusted part of the Congress and occupation apparatus probably through the middle part of the 18th century. And then there are some things that happen to begin to estrange them from the court. And eventually, I think later in the 18th century, you have this attempt to racialize them. And so to just say they're actually Chinese after all. And the important thing about them is they submitted to us and they're loyal to us. And that means that's the history of the Chinese. That was a sort of special kind of little project at the end of the 18th century. And we'll definitely talk about that. But before, I mean, since you mentioned the three feudatories, were there any changes after the three feudatories were suppressed? Because these were Han people, the generals, the leaders at least, who were trusted by the Manchu government and they were given huge power and enfiefed as princes or even kings, right? This term Wang is difficult to translate. The fact that they ended up rebelling must have come as a shock somewhat to the Qing court. Do we see any changes to how they dealt with Han people after that? I wouldn't say that you could generalize, right? And say on account of the perceived perfidy of these leaders of the three feudatories, therefore, we're not going to change our attitude towards all the Chinese martial or even all the Chinese. I think there was a certain amount of suspicion early on, even within the first three, four, five years of the new base in Beijing and then moving out across North China, that they were discovering that some of these people, it could be that it's because they are Chinese martial, but it could be just because we're relying on them. We're giving them all kinds of power and discretion. And part of the discretion they have is to collect a very significant amount of money for themselves and a lot of power. And that this is just something that is going to, to what? So give us a looser and looser amount of control over these people. And they had tried this early on. And I think by the end of the 1640s, the Dorgon in particular was really convinced. This is just, this is a temporary thing. You can put these people in for a little while, but eventually we are going to have to find a different kind of solution. 
And so in the Kangxi Emperor, from the time he came to the throne, age 14, he was already, I think, prepared to hear this kind of bad news from southern China. And in some ways, he provoked, particularly Wu Sangui, into this kind of decision to rebel. First, it was his decision to retire, which sort of went more smoothly than Wu Sangui had thought it would. And so when he realized that it's fine with them if I retire, then suddenly it's time to have this rebellion. I think that the Qing rulers from Dorgon to the Kangxi Emperor himself had a very good idea that this was going to happen. It's just that they had a limited amount of power to prevent this happening. This is a period when the Qing, this conquest framework in China was very frail. And I think the important response to this is not necessarily a different way of treating the Chinese civilians, but a different sort of attitude towards all the structures of indirect rule that were being used in southwest China and throughout the western parts of China. I think there the understanding was these areas are going to have to be changed to direct rule because the three feudatories was a big experiment in indirect rule really and it failed and so i think this is part of the propulsion behind this movement all the way through the yongzheng period to turn these areas of indirect rule into areas of direct rule but it is very expensive and it is very slow but i think if there's a real big change in attitude i think it comes basically from that I see. So just to clarify a bit, there wasn't any kind of fundamental changes to how the court viewed these Han banners, correct, after the three feudatories? I don't think there was a big change. I think you always find this little bit of hesitation from Hong Taiji on that let's not go overboard because we have to know who's in control here and so on and so forth. And I think there's a bit of sensitivity about their dependence on the Chinese martial. These, they simply couldn't have done anything they were doing in Liaodong or in China without this population. So it's conquest as a process has these kind of little subplots within it that we're critically dependent on this group. On the other hand, we can never really let our guard down in, in terms of observing them. I just think that when it comes to the Three Feudatories Rebellion, the Chinese martial population was important in suppressing this rebellion. It couldn't have been done without them. I think that the big change was towards all kinds of indirect rule, which I think the Qing would have liked to move away from, but it just wasn't, they didn't have the capacity to do that entirely. Yeah, so it definitely sounds like there was a careful balance there, right, between we need to use these people, but we also need to guard against them. But you said the biggest change came towards the end of the 18th century with the reign of Qianlong, and specifically that he starts constructing these ethnic categories to fit people in. So why did he do this? And how was this ethnic project done? I don't think he's constructing ethnic categories. Those what we would call ethnic categories were already there, right? They had come in the kind of 1630s. What he's doing that I think is different is he is essentializing them, right? He is racializing them. He wants to revamp the whole imperial ideology to make it clear that the Manchus in particular were by their nature, they were 
worthy to rule China and to rule the Northeast and rule anywhere else they conquer. Now, why is he doing this? In The Translucent Mirror, I narrate a lot of this. This was a subject of contention, not just in China, but all across Eurasia in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. And what had happened in China, and this happened at the end of the Ming before the Qing ever got there, was this move towards racialization of identities. I start the translucent mirror with the story of this man and his family who got caught up in this in Liaodong. And that has to do with, I think, much, much larger things about transitions to materialist philosophy, right, at the very end of the Middle Ages, beginning of the early modern period. So it wasn't exclusive to China. What's interesting is that in the early Qing, really early, right, Norhachi and Hongtaiji, as so many other parts of Eurasia are really developing this kind of racialist approach, that's the point at which the Qing are consciously trying to counter that. Because, this, as I say, it's so important. They have to transform the conquered into conquerors. So they can't be essentializing identities. But it's a matter of contention. So the whole Zhengjing thing, this is what they're actually fighting about. And I think the Qianlong Emperor, as a young man, simply didn't agree with the official resolution of that, which was this kind of transformationalist argument that it's education, it's civilization that gives people their identity, right? Not some essentialized, racialized, physical, natural force. I don't think the Qianlong Emperor agreed with that. I think that's why one of the first things he does is try to undo all of that. And then when he would commission a new historical work, he'd write this little preface to it and so on. And through that and so on, and the encouragement of private writers in the 1780s, 1790s, that's when you see this racialization emerge. And, it, and under those kind of pressures, this distinction between Chinese martial and Chinese is not going to hold up. Now, the Channel Emperor, I think there's another side to this, right? There's the strategic side to this. He's not interested in keeping the Hanjun bannermen in the banners. A few, okay, but he needs to get somebody to leave the banners. These are the ones who are most likely to want to do it, who have the capacity to do it. So let's just start chopping down the number of appointments that we're going to give to them. So we have a kind of financial incentive to do that. But I think beyond that, this is part of a whole range of dynamics that relate to the transition from a conquest state to an occupation state. And just as I said, in the early period, you've got this overwhelming priority to turn the conquered into conquerors. As you become an occupation state, that's what you don't need anymore. Now you actually need to essentialize people because you need these new criteria, status criteria, when people can't earn merit, right, through the process of conquest. Now they're going to earn merit through their genealogical connections, through their historicized connections to certain populations. So I think it's just a lot of things coming together in the later part of the 18th century. I think part of it, the emperor's actual philosophy, but beyond that, all the other sort of pressures that were fairly consistent with each other in terms of racializing this Chinese identity and forcing the Chinese martial into it. I see. And also, just because you mentioned uh, Zheng Jing, and for those who don't know who he is, I just want to briefly explain he was a minor official literatist who wrote anti-Manchu pamphlets and tried to instigate rebellion. I think the Yongzheng Emperor treated him very leniently. And then that kind of gets into what you were explaining about education and transformation and Qianlong was responding to that. The question then I have is that 
What about the Mongol banners then? Do we also see changes to the Mongol banners if he's essentializing race? And we see this with the Han. What about the Mongols? I think it's a story that has some parallels. There is something distinct about, again, this is us looking back, right? We use the word Mongols and we look back on all these populations that in the 17th and 18th centuries had really distinct kind of appellations for themselves and distinct political forms and so on. Mongols, right? meaning that that's our term. You have to remember that, okay, in the early, very early Qing, this is one of the most important things that happened it politically, right, to Narkachi is these Eastern, these Karachin populations, Korachin, who are coming in. And he's realizing these are very important allies who are going to give them a very honored place. And later, there's a little more of that with some Tumat who are in Liaodong province. And this is more or less the basis of the Mongol Eight Banners. And this is a small population but for most of Qing history, a very privileged one. They always had quotas for the exams and for appointments, paying jobs in the banners. They always had quotas that were pretty outsized in relation to their actual population. This, once the eight banners are formed, again, this is like prior to 1644. After that, beginning in the 1680s, there are these Qing campaigns of conquest into Mongolia. There's subjugation of the Khalka and so on. And then these are populations not brought into the Mongol Eight Banners. They are left more or less in situ, and the Qing attempt to create these structures of indirect rule. And right there, there's a very basic kind of historical and administrative difference in these populations, so that from the Kharachin to the Chaha and the Eastern Tumat, you've got one kind of source, historical source for their status under the Qing. And then for the peoples of central Mongolia, you've got another one. And then, of course, western Mongolia and Xinjiang together have this whole other kind of representation because of the kind of the legacy of the Oirat Khanate and the so-called Dzongars. There's Linguistically, there's lots of connections among all these groups. Religiously, there's a more problematic connection. And politically, there's a hugely problematic connection. Now, here's what's interesting about this and relates to your question. When you look at the way in which the Qing, particularly in the Qianlong period, are historicizing Mongolia, they are constantly using this term Mongol, and these are the Mongols. And so they can use adjectives to differentiate some groups within that, but basically it's going to be the Mongols. Remember the Qing publish in these imperial languages, so they're publishing in Mongolian. For that, you've got to select some kind of standard. So you're going to take half Mongolian and say that's Mongolian. There's plenty of people out there who the Qing would like to call Mongols who are not speaking that language at all. So you have to standardize that. You have to standardize the idea of Chinggisid status because it, it basically leads to the Qing imperial lineage. So all those things have to be put together. And you do that, the language exams, the language training, the publishing that the court is doing, the historicizing, and then finally, administratively, I'm just saying, in the case of the populations we would call Mongol now, the administrative aspect is really quite distinct from the way things were done for the Manchus or even for the Hanju. Just a point of clarification, Han, Manchu, Mongols, these are major groups of people in the Qing Empire, but we also know that there were other 
groups of people, for example, Tibetans, and in the Southwest, you just have a whole bunch of them. Was Channel doing this for every single ethnic group, or is it just for these bigger ones? Well, this is really important because every once in a while, I still read these kind of textbook things that will start out with something like the Qing Empire was very friendly to cultural diversity or something, you know, again, all our terms just projected back onto all this. No, the Qing were interested in selecting, stereotyping, historicizing, and representing only a small number of identities that they could link to the conquest. And for the Chinese, this is done through the Hanjun. For the Uyghurs who are eventually brought into this, it's basically these lineages who were collaborators with the conquest. And so this famous concubine, the Xiangfei, came from one of those lineages, one of the leading ones. So those few lineages there actually constitute the narrative for the Uyghurs in Qing historiography as facilitators of the conquest. In the case of Tibet, it's mostly the religious leaders who were very important in elucidating this kind of imperial aspect to Qing rule. So when Norhachi had his ceremony of investing himself as the Khan, there is a Tibetan lama there to make sure that the spiritual side of this is covered correctly. And this does provide some links, right, to Kublai Khan and all of this kind of stuff. And there are some esoteric sects of Buddhism, particularly even esoteric sects within Tibetan Buddhism, that had a very special importance to the Qing court. So Tibetan is one of those, if you were to look at something like the five parallel language dictionary, right? It has the five imperial languages in it. Uyghur is one of those, and Tibetan is one of those. But in the representation of those two groups, the historicization of those two groups, Tibet has almost no people. Right. It's the religious tradition, which is given this kind of geospatial, we can triangulate on it as a place, but doesn't have any people. In the imperial ideology, the way you represent all of the things, they always relate to what did they do for the conquest? What did they do for the imperial lineage? And if you're from one of these little groups down there, particularly in southwest China, where you didn't do anything for the conquest, or at least nothing we can actually represent, you're just going to be where you were basically in the late Ming. You're going to be subjected to these progressive programs of assimilation. And nobody is going to represent your language in imperial stele, right, or imperial performance. You're just going to basically disappear. And of course, that joins together with this 18th century determination on the part of the Qing to eliminate as much indirect rule as they can. So they want to bring these people under civil administration. They want to assimilate them. And in the Qing, we could use all kinds of criteria to identify distinct cultural groups, but let's say there were thousands. And three or four got selected to undergo this process of imperial representation. And of course, those are not even real cultures. They're stereotyped, they're formulaic, they're codified, so they can be represented and they're historicized in a way that the court completely controls. That's just absolutely fascinating, right? When you think of, there's so many different groups of people in China, but yet these few are selected and put under this imperial project. This is so interesting. We can talk a lot more about this. For the sake of time, I think we need to move on to now the much more complicated 
20th century. And in the epilogue of your book, Translucent Mirror, you make the argument that what the Qing did under Qianlong influenced some of the Han Chinese nationalist writers, such as Liang Qichao. Can you explain how this influence was manifested in their writings? Yeah, the influence part, I think, comes mostly from the fact that the Qing, like the other great land empires of the early modern period, over the course of time, this historicization I've been talking about is a huge part of the project. So at the end of the Qing, it was interesting, these groups that we're talking about, I call them the constituencies, right, which are not people. They're not people. They're historicized, narrated, right, identities that real people can identify with if they want to or not. At the end of the empire, as these orders are losing their coercive power, everybody can choose. Are you going to internalize the materials provided by the empire as they relate to somehow or other composing this identity that you do want to assume? Or are you going to reject it? The Qing, they've not only provided histories, they've provided geography, right? They've provided, in some cases, genealogies, not a lot of them but language primers, dictionaries, right? So if you're from one of these constituencies, which would be Chinese, Han, Mongol, even Uyghur, Tibetan, at the end of the Qing, that's where you see the nationalist movements. They have the cultural resources to be able to foment these kind of movements, and they want to accept it right? So that they will have the resources. This is the problem. It's not just the Qing. This is the problem people have with the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire. If you really want to have this nationalist movement, it means you have to accept what the empire has given you over the previous two or 300 years in terms of, this is my language, these are my religious practices, this is the history of where my people came from, and so on. So that's one kind of influence. But what I was talking about at the end of the book is really the way in which this same kind of debate, this 18th century debate, is performed again in the nationalist movement in China. And again, this is not unique to China. This is just a classic sort of argument that even occurred again in global academic circles in the 60s and 70s when people were trying to talk about this ethnicity thing, right? So you have in the 20th century, we call them the essentialists, right? As contrasted to whatever these others are, the constructivist Liang Qichao, who had these really interesting ideas about China as a civilization, but also as an expansive power, bringing its civilized values to larger and larger numbers of people, particularly throughout Asia, he's looking at it almost exactly the way the Yongzheng emperor looked at it, that this is what happens with education, with civilization, you transform people. And for Liang Qichao, China was going to be a major agent of that. He didn't know exactly when this would happen, but he was sure this was going to happen. The usual contrast to that is Zhang Bingling, Zhang Taiying, who was an essentialist of a certain kind. There was in the early 20th century, across Eurasia, I mean, in Europe, in Japan, in India, in China, you had these movements, in some cases they're called nativist movements, where the feeling was we can use anthropology, we can use folklore studies, we can use linguistics, we can use archaeology to be able to find the essence of our people, 
right? Not our civilization, but our people. We're going to find the essence of our people through very close study of the origins of our language and the way it relates to, you know, we're going to create a mentality, right, that we think represents us. And Zhang Taiyin, who was expert in so many of these disciplines, had the idea, this is what we'll do. And with the empire gone, we're all going to create polities. And we've got to create polities based on values that will mean something to us Chinese. But the Manchus, the Mongols, the Tibetans, they have to do the same thing. They're Because they're essentially not us, therefore they essentially will never be comfortable under our political system. So they need to just go back. So the Manchus go back to Manchuria, Mongols go back to Mongolia, Tibetans back to Tibet. And we Chinese will stay here in these historical territories of China and build our polity based on our values and the fact that we, of necessity, will be sympathetic to each other. So we won't be able to have a political system that is going to be harmful to any of the people who are truly part of our group. So that's what I was pointing out, that this is really parallel to this sort of argument from the 18th century, basically between the Yongzhang Emperor, the Qianlong Emperor, and then again in the 20th century comes back. It does keep coming back, right, in various contexts. It's not exclusive to China in any particular way. But I think, yeah, there is a kind of reconstruction of that debate with transformationalism on the one side, essentialism on the other side. But there is a connection because of the dependency of nationalists on the materials that have been generated in the imperial period. I am just thinking about the first flag, one of the early flags of the Republic of China that's named Five Races Under One Banner. And these are exactly the five groups that... Well, what a coincidence. This is not a coincidence at all. It is just an extension of what had been happening in the imperial period. But I have to say, part of the reason that essentialism just didn't really make it was that it wasn't strategically viable. You couldn't just spin off all these little countries when you've got Russia, England, Japan, just sitting there waiting to scoop them up. And so as a final concluding question, we know that the modern PRC has 56 ethnic groups. And a lot of these were constructed in the 50s. I'm thinking about, for example, the Hui ethnicity, which just loved a bunch of Muslim groups together. Do we see any legacy from the Qing playing out in how the PRC was going about constructing their ethnic categories? Yeah, there's a lot. I could tell you at this point a really complicated story that I will avoid. Let's put it this way. The ethnic categories imposed in China in the 50s were basically constructed along these sort of Stalinist lines. And the policy was also very much adopted from the policy in the Soviet Union regarding these ethnicities. And the criteria used no big surprise, were very much like the criteria that had been used in the Qing Empire, in the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire. Your language, your ancestry, your religion, your vicinage, you're all living here together. You have a homeland, right? Those criteria were common. As I said, they had been used already in the Soviet Union. They were becoming common throughout the sociological practices. Weber had a little bit of interest in them. But they are rooted pretty much in these imperial practices of the early modern period of thinking that people have got essential identity features that come from things like language and ancestry and so on that were regarded as natural and immutable. In the 21st century, I think we really almost do not have this idea anymore. And so it seems strange to us. But 
it was rooted again, I had referred before to this very early modern sweep of a turn towards materialist philosophy, at which point there had become to be this focus on the human body and the idea that humans have encoded in their bodies certain kinds of moral traits. And in the, you look at the Ming discussions of the Mongols, for instance, it's all over there. You look at Qing discussions of the Muslims, it's all over that. So the imperial legacy is just huge here, but it's a little bit indirect in the case of the PRC because it actually comes from the Soviet Union. Now, where it was before that is this whole big complicated thing that I won't get into, but let's just say some connections are more direct and some are very indirect. Maybe in the future you can come back to the show and we can talk a little bit more about this in detail. But I do want to thank you today for taking the time to talk about this. And for all the listeners who want to know more, please read Professor Crossley's book, Translucent Mirror, as well as our other publications. But again, thank you, Professor Crossley. Thanks so much for putting this together. I'm really impressed. Thank you very much. Well, that concludes our interview. Thank you so much for listening to the Chinese History Podcast.